The reading this evening is um, Mark chapter 6, verses uh, uh, 1 to 29. Jesus left Jairus' house and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could, do, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. But if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist, Baptist has been risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And others, others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and she liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body 
and laid it in a tomb. Lord, we thank you for this remarkable story. We pray that it may come to life to us tonight and that it may really influence us in the way we behave. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Mark is like an artist in this almost central chapter of the gospel. He paints two ways. Two ways we can go, two ways we can find fulfillment, two ways to live and to die. We've got to choose. Let's start with the Herod story. It's a famous one and it's often misunderstood. But it is a graphic picture of wealth and worldly success. Ask yourself, what sells newspapers? Three things. And if they're all combined, then so much the better. Royalty is one thing. Any story about the royals sells extensively, not only in this country, but widely overseas. Just think of Prince William and Kate Middleton, or throw your mind back to the days of Diana, Prince of Wales. Royalty. Sex. People love reading about scandalous sex, especially if it concerns famous people. The news of the world lives on stories like that. And the third thing is religion. Maybe it's Muslim extremists, Maybe it's Catholic abuse of uh, kids. Maybe it's the latest denunciations of Christianity by Richard Dawkins. But one way or another, religion remains news. Now put that package together, royalty, sex, and religion, located in the first century Galilee, and you have the story of Herod and John the Baptist. Uh, within an hour, it would have got round the palace. By the next morning, uh, everybody in town would know. Within a day or two, it would have been all over Galilee. If it had happened today, it would have been screaming at us from all the front pages. It's sordid and shabby, and shameful, just what people love to read about. And the scandalous goings on at Herod's birthday party with his stepdaughter doing an erotic dance, Herod's rash and doubtless drunken promise to give away half the kingdom that he didn't have, the calculating second wife who saw her opportunity and the summary execution of the prophet whom all Galilee and Judea had gone out to for baptism. Well, you can just imagine the whisperings, the shakings of the head, the muttering that no good would come of it. And no good did come of it. Within 10 years, Herod's power was gone. He was exiled to die in disgrace in a distant land and to perish in oblivion. Within 
a generation, John's story had been written up by Mark, honoring him as a fearless witness to the kingdom of God and winning him worldwide acclaim from that day to this. Just two ways, gotta choose. Let's look more closely at the main players at that dinner party. Herod, one of this a big and extraordinarily crooked family of rulers. Herod was Herod Antipas. He was the tetrarch, that means to say the subsidiary ruler of Galilee and Perea. Perea was the bit on the right-hand side of the Jordan, as you look at the map, the other side there. And um, he ruled his particular patch from uh, 4 BC when his dad died to 39 AD when the emperor kicked him out. He cultivated ties with Rome and he was passionately ambitious. He wanted to be made king and the emperor wouldn't do it. And Mark uses the title king here several times in this story, very ironically, to mock the man's unfulfilled vanity. Antipas was trying to complete his father's um, work, great project of rebuilding the temple at Jerusalem. And this temple building stuff had always been associated with royalty ever since Solomon built the first temple a thousand years earlier. And Herod wanted to be acclaimed as successor to the kings of Israel with pomp and power and religious acclaim. He wanted to be seen as the fulfillment of popular messianic hopes. That was one man at the dinner party. The second person was Herodias. Herodias was not only the um, wife of um, Herod's brother, she was his own niece. She was married to another Herod, whom uh, Josephus doesn't name, but Mark tells us was called Philip. She had a daughter with Philip, and uh, again, this gospel doesn't tell us the name, but Josephus does, she was called Salome. And on one of his many trips to Rome to suck up to the emperor, Herod Antipas stayed with Philip and Herodias, and he fell madly in love with Herodias. And she said, okay, I will divorce my husband, and I will marry you, although she was well into middle age, I will marry you if you will get rid of your current wife. Now Antipas was married for dynastic reasons to the daughter of King Aratas of Nabatea. Nabatea was the kingdom just to the south on the right-hand side of Herod's patch. The capital was Petra. Some of you will have been there, that rose-red city half as old as time. Well, somehow, 
Herod's wife got hold of this plan. She heard about Herod Antipas's intentions and she fled at once to her father who was hopping mad and vowed revenge. And indeed he took revenge by a military invasion a few years later. Salome, uh, a small part of this scene, she was probably uh, 16 or 17 years old, a very sexy girl and totally manipulated by her mother. So Herod and Herodias, the third person in this party, was not at the party at all. He was downstairs in the dungeons. He was John the Baptist, the wide-eyed prophet from the deserts, the man who had proclaimed the coming of a very different sort of messianic figure from the one that Herod wanted to be. A king who would bring not violence, but transformation of life. Not brutality, but forgiveness. But why did John denounce the divorce and remarriage, which was pretty common in those days as it is today, why did he get so worked about this um, divorce and remarriage? Why did he denounce it so strongly? And why did Herod clap him into irons for it and put him in a dungeon? Well, it wasn't just because it was immoral and it was against Jewish law to marry your brother's wife while your brother was still alive, especially when the woman concerned was your own niece. It wasn't just because some actions like this by a leader set a very bad example to the people. No. It was because John saw where Herod was going. He saw through Herod to the man's lust for kingship and earthly power. The man who wanted to be king, to be seen as the successor of the kings of Israel that packed up years ago, who wanted to be seen as a messianic figure. John spotted it. And John was proclaiming a very different kingdom. His baptism offered forgiveness. And by that, it effectively upstaged this grand temple that Herod was trying to build. His promise of a coming great one who was about to appear spoke of a very different king from the sort that Herod wanted to become. And that's why Herod was so anxious. And that's why he arrested John and put him in jail. Herod was particularly knocked that uh, John had rubbed his nose in it by um, telling everybody that a man with a sex life like Herod could hardly be God's anointed king. What sort of a messiah would divorce his wife to marry his niece and then uh, have the daughter hanging around? No wonder Herod and Herodias were livid. No wonder they shut him up by putting him in prison. But Herod was a divided soul. One part of him 
was so anxious at this very dangerous message. Josephus says that uh, uh, Herod was afraid that John would lead a revolution. Herod was petrified that his plans for a sort of kingly, messianic thing would not come good. So he slapped the man in prison to shut him up. But the other side of Herod was saying, I don't know, there's something about this prophet that gets to me. I need to hear him from time to time. There was a strange compulsion to go on listening to John until that day of the party, of the guests, of the wine, of the erotic dance, of the rash promise, and of the executioner's grim trip to the dungeon. It's rather a sobering thought that although, as we've been seeing tonight, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God, nevertheless, those who predict that, those who talk about it in advance, are likely to suffer the fury of the reigning regime, the people who are in power but they feel their power is slipping away from them, especially when threats like that come out. So here we have a graphic picture of the choice, or one of the choices, that men and women can make. We may opt for the Herod path of fulfillment, of influence, kingship, of money, of power, sex, religion, respectability, fame, parties, control, with maybe the darker side of drunkenness and sexual abuse and uh, treading on people who get in our way. That's one path we can tread. It's glamorous and many people go for it. They do in politics, they do in finance, ask the bankers. They do in commerce. It's one way that is very widely followed. But it will end as it ended for Herod, in failure and loneliness and an unloved death. The other way we can go is laid out for us in the first part of the chapter. It's the way of following the path of a despised carpenter, as he's called in verse 3. And he's described uh, rather slanderously as the son of Mary. That means to say that the people were talking about Jesus being a bastard, being illegitimate, because you never called anyone a son of his mother in Judaism, unless they were illegitimate. It was always the son of a father. So who is this guy with this dodgy beginning? Great teachers, everybody admitted. Very wise. He could do remarkable things. But even his own town, Nazareth, even his own family, we're told here, did not believe in him. Yeah, you could follow such a strange figure if you liked. If you did, you would know that he was not the son of Joseph because he was born of God. You would know that his mighty works attested who he was, the true king of human hearts, 
the utter counterpart of Herod. You would know that his ministry was ineffective only when it was met as it was in Nazareth and why his family, when it's met with hard unbelief because the good news of Jesus needs belief and trust if it's to fall into soil where it flourishes. Now, if you did take that second part and become one of his followers, this is what it would involve. He would send you out to pass on that message. There are to be no passengers in the ship of the kingdom of God. Everybody in that ship was in the crew. Nobody a passenger. And their lives and their lips were to bear witness to who this strange carpenter was. He would send you out of your comfort zone as he sent the twelve out into the villages, telling others of this alternative way to fulfillment and joy and seeing the Lord's power change lives. He did that then, and he does it still. And tonight, I believe he's doing it to us. I believe he's saying, if you really are following Jesus, you will pray and think and invite very hard to the Alpha course that is starting on Wednesday week. In St. Andrews, we are not very good at inviting people to Alpha courses. And for a church this size, they're usually rather small. And I think that is a shame on us. Of course, it's hard. The people that I asked last time did not come, although they promised they would. And that is a great disappointment, and we'll find that constantly. But like the Twelve, we are sent out with good news to pass it on. And Jesus stressed the urgency of that outreach. They were to carry no provisions with them, but no beggar's bag either. They were to carry no money with them. They were to carry no suitcase full of a change of clothes. And like Dan Cousins's walk of a thousand men, they were to get going with the good news and trust God to supply their needs. If you've ever been on one of those walks of a thousand men, as I have, telling the good news in the pubs, going from village to village, sleeping on the floor of church halls, you will know that God does supply our needs when we are seriously about his business. And if you do this, you will heal many broken lives, as those 12 did. You will also get it in the neck. There will be some form of opposition or persecution because the world does not love the gospel and it does not love the Christians who take that gospel seriously. And so you have the death of John the Baptist here as a foreshadowing in this story of the future that awaited Jesus. 
at the end of the story and many of his followers later on. And that is why this, which is the only story that's not about Jesus in the whole of Mark's gospel, that is why this story is plumb in the middle of the gospel to give you a foretaste of what happens if you take that second part of following the carpenter. If you choose to follow the Baptist and the man of Nazareth, you can expect opposition and sometimes you can expect death. That is not coming in this country yet, but it's happening in many countries of the world. It's happening in Nigeria, happening in Afghanistan, happening in Pakistan. If you are known as a Christian, then that could be a death sentence to you. If anybody reports you to the authorities, you can be bumped off. When my son was a missionary in Pakistan, he remembers being told by one of the um, police that a man had come into the police station and said, I've just killed a, a, a Christian, where's my reward? There is a cost to discipleship. And there's glory too. In the long run, the glory wins out over the cost. Herod had very muddled ideas about resurrection. When Jesus was coming into prominence, he said, goodness me, is this, is this John the Baptist that I bumped off come back to haunt me? Very strange views about the resurrection. But actually, he spoke truer than he knew because the life of humble service and fearless witness to Jesus to Jesus will be opposed and often it will be snuffed out but there will always be resurrection there will always be new life because all the abuse and the opposition and the persecution provided by worldly power will not be able in the long run to see off those who follow King Jesus even if they get killed there will be a resurrection of their cause. And anyhow, it's always been true, has it not, that the blood of the martyrs is seed. Those first half dozen martyrs in Uganda more than a century ago, because they would not give in to the homosexual urges of the king. The blood of those youngsters has been seed in Uganda. Amazing, flourishing seed. And so it has been all down the ages. And so it will be until Jesus comes again. So there, there, there is a choice. There is a choice that faces us in this beautifully crafted chapter. Each of us must choose to live for worldly fulfillment the parties, the influence, the sex, the money, it's a very attractive option. Or to live for Jesus Christ with that simple lifestyle, that fearless witness, and the endurance of hardship that this will inevitably bring and the glory that will follow. We've got to choose. And tonight's chapter lays that choice out starkly before us. Choose. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this superb picture in this chapter of the humble, healing, wise, loving Lord Jesus, sending out his disciples with no resources really into the villages to spread the message of his kingly rule and the man who wanted to be king with all the accoutrements of power and lust and money and greed and debauchery. And we see that contrast in our own society. And we see that if we follow Jesus Christ seriously, we're going to be in a minority, we're going to be opposed, we're going to be scorned. But we know, Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, that the future lies with you and with your cause. Please give us the courage to follow you as you deserve and to choose for King Jesus. Amen.